Hey there, little Red Riding Hood. You sure are looking good. You're everything a big bad wolf could want. Listen to me, little Red Riding Hood. Like to hold you if I could. But you might think I'm a big bad wolf, so I won't. Oh, what will lips have the better to love you with? Little Red Riding Hood, even bad walls can be good. I try to be satisfied just to walk close by your side. Maybe you'll see things my way. Before we get to Grandma's place, I'm gonna keep my sheep suit on till I'm sure that you've been shown that I can be trusted walking with you alone. <sighs> All right, I've launched this into the ether. Everyone's aware of what's happening here. Ah, uh, here we go. Man, the forever purge. I'm so pissed. <sighs> All right. So I have a long relationship with this purge franchise. First, I remember distinctly when I first heard about the purge. It was not even seeing the movie. It was reading in on one of those awful movie websites years ago when I would just do that all day. Uh, just in, indulge in this, you know, uh, hamster ball. Just spin around in the wheels of like uh, observing this culture, and, ex and uh, instead of actually doing anything with my life, uh, and I remember thinking, this is just a really cheap way to get around the classic home invasion problem, plot problem of why don't they just call the cops? Like you have to do something to explain why this house is going to be invaded over the course of this long without them. You know, being able to raise a neighbor and get people involved outside of uh, the house. You can only, you know, how, how many times can it be a remote farmhouse in the middle of nowhere? Uh, so, hey, what if crime is legal? It just felt like a, a plot cop-out. And then the movie really did confirm that. The movie is, uh, is really just a very by-the-numbers home invasion movie. But then with The Second Purge, which is a really, really good movie, uh, it seems like they're actually grasping that, oh, like, what would it actually mean to do this? Like, what, what, what would our society basically have to look like to have that be a thing? And how would it impact things? And in that respect, it, it got interesting. And those movies, I mean, obviously, you know, they're not revolutionary documents, nor they should, nor should they be. But this is a rare case where the infiltration of like political uh, text. Uh, is actually helpful because it's still in the realm of just, you know, pulp entertainment. It, it, it's as far as you can get from something that someone can really think is going to be politically meaningful. It's, 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 yes, it's politics, but it's politics as aesthetics as it should be. 
which is watch a movie and you know get riled up like a, like a John Carpenter movie. It's like they they live. I think would be would be a good comparison to the Purge movies in terms of their their uh, their text level, like how much how how uh, how uh, expressly political the texts are. It's about on par with They Live, which I think is a great movie. So it's in that tradition. And all those movies have explored parts of it to better or less degrees. The election night is uh, okay. It's a bit of a letdown. There's some good stuff in it, but uh, it really does sort of... Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, politically, it's it's very lib. It's very Kautsky as opposed to Lenin. Uh, but uh, that's really not the problem. The problem is that it doesn't really take that whole like electoral element interestingly enough they don't they don't do enough with it uh and also their idea of like our ruling class is too parochial it's too bush era you know it's like oh it's it's crazy christian fundamentalists like no that's not it uh but anyway the the first purge i think was really good the first purge is probably the best one The, the first purge, meaning the third or the fourth purge movie, very confusing, does something really interesting with the concept in terms of making it, uh, you know, this overt political document, this like 70s style agitprop. Uh, but uh, is marred by, among other things, the use of fucking CGI instead of squibs and bullets and it's just, it's very distracting. They cheap out and it just looks like a video game and you don't get like if this, this genre is about viscerality. This genre is about cheap thrills. And that means when you see somebody get shot, you want to imagine that that really is blood exploding out of their chest. I know that's sick, but that's what you're trying to get out of these movies. It's like some part of it is. And then they did a purge TV show. And very quickly it dawned on me when that was announced how that they really did not the people who made this stuff the guy's name is like uh D- James DeAngelis or something is like the 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 uh the singular genius behind the purge franchise is that they don't really get what's interesting about it they just keep hitting the same beats over and over again as many people have pointed out there's nothing in these purge movies about what other than people running around and ritually murdering each other people would be doing on that night because Yes, I don't. I don't think you can downplay that there would be some significant ritual violence during something like this. This society has reached a point of, of boil where that would absolutely be the case. Are you kidding? People act like it's the the purges. Uh, there's millions of people in this country who act like the purge is real every day of their lives. It's just in terms of their practical uh, application, and and we know the result of that. But there's so much else that could be going on. And they really hit a wall creatively because they did a Purge TV show. And I thought, oh, you know what would be great here? An anthology series where it's the different story every episode with a different thing happening in the Purge. And maybe they're all part of one greater uh, like plot that gets tied up at the end. But mix it up. And instead, they just did another thing that they, done la- they did before. Uh, and then... Uh, only even more ham-fistedly political than anything before. And then 
amazingly, they did a second season of the TV show where the purge ends in the first episode, and the rest of it is people is people like uh, trying to investigate what happened, like at the very end of the purge. And so it's not during the purge. And now this new one is the like anti uh, ice, anti uh, immigration, or anti borders. Uh, you know, politically, like what the the first purge was clearly the Black Lives Matter purge, and and the, the this new forever purge is the uh, is the uh, immigrants' rights movement purge. And I gotta say, that's not that interesting to me, especially if you're gonna say, yeah, now it's forever, the purge is forever, and it really does show that if you're not gonna get interesting in the context, uh, in your like high concept, it's gonna wear out quickly. It wore out. Uh, it's what it says is they didn't know what else to make it, to do to make it interesting. So I'm saying there's other things they could have done if they were a little more creative. Like do some comedy. Do financial crimes. Do like com- complicated stuff. You could do some amazing like uh, uh, farce with the, the uh, like splitting the hairs between like the levels of weapon that are, ex- that are, uh, you know, allowed to be used and stuff like that. So I will see the, 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 Oh my God. Ah. Well, there you have it, folks. It finally happened. Not gonna lie, that's pretty embarrassing. This fucking IKEA ass chair. Uh, was held together with like bolts, and it just absolutely exploded. Hey, that's gonna be capped. Oh well. I really should just stop talking now because what would any why would anyone listen to anything I'd ever have to say after that? Good lord. What an own. God damn. I just got so owned. Now, fair enough. Cap that if you must because what am I going to do, you know? It happened. Oh well. My damn chair exploded. Hey. Well, I hope that was pretty funny. I hope it was funny. Damn. Annihilated.
Well, that was a nice run. RIP to me. Alright, boy. Alright. I don't know. I don't know how I'm gonna follow that, but let me give it in. Let me give me a minute. Uh well, that's the end of me. So anyway, uh, yeah, thumbs down to the Purge franchise. They're running out of ideas. Oh, man. What an oaf. Yeah, no, I'm in a, I'm in my I'm in a new reality now. Uh, I'm not I I didn't really even look at the Sopranos thing. I'm not that interested. It look I mean, I'll, I'll watch it probably, but I don't know. Not really interested one way or another. And I'm really not. I'm not a fan of prequel stuff at this point. It really does feel like the tail eating the the the, the fucking the snake eating its own tail, like culture consuming itself into extinction, like cannibalizing itself, because we cannot. There is no money to be made uh, reliably in uh, trying to create a new world for people to believe in, because they have no belief left. So all you can do is take those scraps of things that have worked, the things that have like proven themselves to have some sort of symbolic power and uh and just put more money into that, you know? And you can say, "Oh, they might try to do something good," but like it's essentially the same artificial constraints on storytelling that happen with the fucking superhero movies. Like you are constrained you aren't able to tell something that maybe would be more authentic to the artist, whoever that might be. They're kind of chained by the existing intellectual property, literal intellectual property. Like that's, that's how uh, it's organized. I mean, like I think better call Saul, a lot of people love it, but for me, that is the, the number one example of what I'm talking about. Better Call Saul feels like, it to me, it could have been a really uh, interesting show if the original elements of it hadn't been wedded to Breaking Bad. Uh, 
I mean, I really did not. What really turned me off that show was when we found out, oh, how how Hector got uh, his got in a wheelchair. Yeah, that that was something that was an uh, an unanswered question of of like significance. Like that's not the kind of set dressing that you just take for granted in any story you hear. It only gains mythic relevance afterwards when you're trying to build on this fucking this carcass, this artistic corpse that you're just trying to pick over and reskin. So uh, no thank you to uh, the whole trend of things that are just iterations of existing structures. And also, I'm sorry, how we get from uh, how we get from Jimmy McGill to Saul Goodman is not uh, a, an interesting uh, arc to make as the basis for your show because that's not what anybody liked about Saul Goodman. He was in a story that was about that, that was about like a, a, a regular person becoming a criminal. Like that was the whole Mr. Chips to Scarface. And you're literally just doing it over again. You're just saying, hey, remember that uh, arc thing that happened? Here it is again with a different character. It's the way that when they made that solo movie, right? Everyone remember that? Now, maybe Lord and Miller uh, had a good idea for a solo movie that they fired them for making because it was too uh, outside of the brand of Star Wars. But what they ended up making with Ron Howard is shit. And one of the big reasons it's shit is that it recapitulates the arc that Han Solo has in the first trilogy. You're just having his character have the exact same conversion towards caring about the rebellion that he had in that movie. And you could say, oh, maybe he gets disillusioned again between then and Star Wars, but who fucking cares? You should tell a different story. And that's because it had to be in this box. It's it's all cannibalism. You're cannibalizing the corpse of like emotional connection that people have to these existing intellectual properties, and then just trying to smuggle in this stepped-on dog shit. Because who really cares about any of that stuff artistically? Everybody who's doing this stuff has already made so many compromises internally away from what they would want to do artistically that they essentially can't stop themselves because they are, once you're cooked into the system, 
once you've accepted a certain level of comfort in life and a certain level of uh, ease and, and lack of alienated labor, you take that for granted. And then you organize your idea of art, your idea of what matters around that. And all of a sudden you find yourself becoming much more uh, liberal, much more, uh, uh, much less ca confrontational with capitalism. And then you make things in that mold. And it's not as good as the stuff you would have made if capitalism wasn't determining your, your uh, motives in that moment. And it's like, I would rather not celebrate this decline. I would rather like hold a standard just because if you don't, you will be sucked into the abyss. You will be pulled into uh, uh, abstracting away from yourself all of your emotions and, and vigor not, and, and life and connection, not around the world in your moment, not around life experience, but as life remembered in the form of these symbols, these dead symbols that you're going to uh, chase down the fucking uh, drain. And that is the challenge that we all face because we are all fixed in our positions, in our, uh, in our lives, the things we do every day, the choices we make every day by what we think of as our material interest. So this is the essential insight of Marxism, right? Or one of them anyway. I could say maybe the most essential in terms of building like an understanding of human relationships out of it. Is that people are driven at base by their material interests. Not an idea in their head, not any ideology, nothing but what is good for them in, in a narrow, self-interested sense. Now, through those people all interacting with each other, they build structures that create new relationships, and those new relationships alienate us away from certain elements that we had taken for granted. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves in new arrangements against capitalism, perhaps, but because of our, our lives lived, but always through the pursuit of material interests. And the pursuit of material interest determines everyone on every part of the chain that it is not the exclusive providence of the evil rich. They're not choosing to be self-interested because they're choosing evil. They are being self-interested because we all are, and they're better at it because they're already next to money. That gives them more time to focus on it. It gives them a better ability to coordinate amongst each other. But it is still uh, uh, self-interest. It's the same way that class consciousness develops among the working class because of mutual conditions of exploitation. And, and it is understood, oh, my self-interest would actually be uh, advanced by uh, the collective self-interest being advanced and that we could do better together than uh, alone and separate against these forces. That's the forge that creates class consciousness and it's all ge generated by material interests. Now, that insight is uncomfortable for a lot of people to accept and undermines a lot of people's uh, uh, credulity when they're engaging with these notions, is that if that is true, then there is no position for free will, that we are, we are fully determined in this condition, if that's true. It is clear cause and effect. We're like, pin, we're like billiard balls, in which case, how are we to live? Even if it's true, it's just like, any question of free will, you have to assume free will. So what is the use of this doctrine if it proposes a mechanistic understanding of the universe where we have no place for agency? 
And the answer to that, in my view, is that when you say material interest, you are not referring to an objective interest, some sort of supernaturally uh, idealistic form of what this person should do in every situation. That is not the material interest. What the material interest is, is an individual's perception of their self-interest, which means it is not just pure uh, uh, profit-seeking. It's profit-seeking wrapped around all the cultural forms that that person has absorbed given where they emerged, what community they lived among, what norms governed them, what values they absorbed, what things do you want and what things do you not want. And that doesn't just mean sensation. It means social esteem. It means a sense of security and safety. It means love. It means all of those things. And those things are not perceived as a uh, market exchange. They are perceived as human interaction and experience, which means they wrap up around cultural, they're wrapped up and then reified through culture. The steam rising from the vents of, uh, of material interaction. And so when people are trying to get figure out what their self-interest is, they are, it is, they are sorting through their uh, culturally imposed uh, values, and then applying that to the question of every every material relationship in their life. So that means that material interests are only self-perceived, and that is why capitalism is suicidal, because there is no break that can be applied once it is fully uh, 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 once the machine is fully in motion and the momentum has accumulated sufficient. The the brakes fall off. Because if the only motive is material interest in the most narrow sense, you will eventually get to a situation where competition spurred on through technolo uh, and, uh, t uh, technological competition over resources is going to uh, essentially cook your fucking planet. Because as resources go away, as entropy enters the system, extraneous conceptions, extraneous notions other than self-preservation can no longer be afforded. And so all of the, that gossamer falls away and what's left then is material interest. And that is why at the sharpest ends of the distribution, material interest is most self-aware. People, if, if the very wealthy understand their material interests much more usually. I mean, that, that's going away, but that's going away for all of us because we're getting demented. We're, our brains are being destroyed by capitalism. We're being hollowed out by the algorithm. Because the algorithm says, uh, extract value of others for oneself. It is taking the labor of others and, and holding it them yourself and using whatever rate degree of culture and technology is necessary to maintain that relationship. It is, it is exploitation. And that can only go, and that can only uh, operate if there is not a human understanding of value that is not self-interested. Otherwise the self-interest becomes narrow. All community bonds explode and, 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 and are shattered and are replaced by, Regimes of technological 
enforcement that alienate us fully from ourselves so that we don't get to choose anything. But at the very top end, material interests are felt. At the bottom, material interests are felt because material interests are how do I stay alive? How do I stay alive? How do I keep a roof over my head? Material interests are well understood. The land of politics is the land in the middle, is where we live. The land of politics is for those people who are comfortable enough to have a conception of, uh, of self-interest that is beyond oneself because they have some sort of faith in a community to maintain their security and to, uh, to provide them with the, the chance to advance, to feel the good things we want to feel, to feel all the good stuff and to not feel the bad stuff that is the, the, basic, the basis of a material interest. We want to feel the good feelings and not feel the bad feelings. That's what we, that's, uh, that is what we want short of all uh, language. But what that means has a cultural dimension. The more in the middle you are, the more precarious you are, where the, the more you feel the need to invest in politics as a mechanism to change things because it makes you feel like you're in control. At one end, people know they're in control. At the bottom end, people know that they're not in control and can't be in control. Only in the middle is there a fantasy of control. But of course, control goes away at every control is going away at every level. So it's all relative. So at the one end, they understand their material interests more because and they have an ability to uh, control things more, but that's going away too. Our powerful, as I've said before, are unique in world history and that there is no earthly authority that supersedes all authority. That means we are governed by the algorithm of self-preservation, everyone for themselves, because we're at the end of the, the, uh, that we are at the uh, point where the entropy has exacerbated through the system so much that there's, uh, they're going to, it's going to destabilize the structures that allow the distribution of resources that we call this uh, civilization. Um. It will all be undermined by self-seeking, narrowly understood uh, self-interest. Because there won't be any money to afford anything else. And technology will have taken over enough of the decision-making that there's going to be plenty of room for the people who can be rich and live with themselves while the machine grinds everybody else up. And that really is a fight. That's the civil war uh, that defines politics in America. It is a civil war between different factions of our ruling class between the fixed capital of, of, of the, uh, of like the land-based economies uh, of the American hinterland versus coastal uh, finance capitalism. And they're, they are two ends of a pole defined by time and space coasts, uh, central uh, areas, uh, former agricultural and industrial bases, and coastal areas of trade and finance, most importantly. 
And then the cultures that are uh, arrayed around them are all cultures of those middle sectors representing those uh, interests in the culture. That's our, that's our politics. It's a civil war between these factions that can no longer recognize each other because of the atomizing and isolating uh, and depersonalizing and alienating effects of capitalism. It's stripping the rich of their sense of autonomy too. And they're expressing it through alienation from each other, through much uh, narrow self-seeking, through a lack of any long-term investment in any stable uh, uh, economic structures. They have lost that. And that is why you get a situation where the rich are steering the boat. For in terms of human in, uh, human agency, the wealthy, the transnational, the, the predicted by Marx, Marx transnational uh, bourgeois that actually run this thing, that move the levers of this fucking thing, that play the piano in the in the saloon. They have less and less discretion over what to do than anybody in their position in history. Even while they have more actual control over it uh, than any other group of people on earth. And that means that they predominate, they're able to express their will, what they think is their will, on, on an unprecedented number of people thanks to technology and globalization. But they're not even in charge and they don't, they don't feel in charge and they're the breakup of civil society is their, uh, their, the lack of faith, the, the crisis of faith they're having in the state to be vessels of their uh, continued control. And that's not what any of those rich people would want to have happen. They don't want this to happen. They are trying... They've been trying to steer the ship away from this their whole lives, and everybody in charge has always been trying to steer away from this, but the runway has run out. The brakes have failed. There's too much uh, feedback in the loop now. It's destabilizing things. And so people have willed us here without wanting it to be the case. People have willed us here without it being their direct desire, and that is why material interest is not deterministic because it is de it, de it ends up depending on how all of us as individuals process the world around us and then individually like, try to live in that world as liberal subjects. But what that material interest is, is not their interest. It is the interest that their society gives them. It's what, it's the values that they have been raised and, and absor have absorbed. And that, how that happens is an individual thing. It's not your demographics as destiny. It's your demographics as setting 
for an experience that shapes you one or another way in a way that is individual. It truly is. And that means it's, it is unique to everyone, that there is no uh, uh, material interest that transcends the individual. But there are aggregated uh, behaviors that organize around these material interests, and then those end up inscribing themselves on the land, and then, then that those are the ones that build institutions and that build legitimacy, and then a language around them, a vocabulary around them, and uh, a coordinated effort around them. The, the self-interest of the ruling class, the self-interest eventually of the working class. That is how those things are generated. And so that would also seem to be fixed. You're saying, yeah, but these things are determined and, and you're fixed in this web of, of, uh, of like demographics and happenstance. But you're also moving through time. Entropy is entering the system. Things are moving. The fucking, uh, the butterflies are flapping their fucking wings, which means you're re-encountering the world at every turn. And in every moment, you have new relationships to all of the things around you, your relationships to labor, your relationships to uh, culture, your own identity. And those things fracture. And that is where new forms come from that then interact with the material reality. And that's why for an individual, at the individual level, the challenge is to recognize where you are in this chain and try to just break the, break the machinery, break the mechanistic, the determined relationship between a stimuli and your reaction to it. Not your necessarily your thought about it, but your reaction to it. Because that gap is the only freedom any of us really have that little moment in time where we can consider and then and then change our perception and change our uh, approach to the world that we're surrounded by. And that is cope. It needs to be said. This is all incredible cope. And yes, of course, because all of these thoughts I've been having are in the context of recognizing that the war between the classes was won by capital. That we are now in a crisis of capitalism because the, the breaks, the class resistance, the counter-hegemonic resistance to capitalism used to provide are broken. That doesn't mean that new structures won't be forged out of this crisis but it is a terminal crisis. And so the question of what to do probably isn't at the level of who do you vote for? Certainly not for fucking president, maybe at the local level. And I would say at the local level, yes, because you might be able to build actual uh, actionable networks out of those uh, relationships because there are people who are in the same area. There are people who can help each other. But that like, National electoral politics, where you're talking about, oh, are we going to get rid of the filibuster? Oh, are we going to add D.C. as a state to get a few more senators? 
as though there's anything like the time to address the situation through those channels without a direct channel challenge to the very edifice that they are part of, I think is unrealistic. That doesn't mean people shouldn't vote. But it certainly means that if you are counting on voting to be where the, the action is and not just sort of a, a social ritual, a recommitment of yourself to a commonwealth, uh, an entertainment element that keeps you invested in the world around you and, and, and keeps you talking to other people. Because remember, while this stuff might, might matter, it's what people care about. So you want to be able to talk to people about it. You want to be engaged because that's how most people understand politics. But the results that happen there are not going to be determinative. The results that happen locally are going to be determinative. The results that create robust infrastructures of resistance are going to be what matters. And that's why I think in L.A., for example, where I've recently come, uh, there's a very impressive effort to uh, make an attempt to grab control of the uh, the city council uh, in L.A., uh, from like the coalition of of you of you know unions and machines that run it now. Now, of course, the terror there is everyone thinks immediately AOC. Oh God, we're talking about all of the awful uh, questions of sheep dipping and and uh, and the PMC takeover and all this crap. That happens because those fucking representatives have no accountability to anybody. What the fuck can anybody do about AOC? No one who, who thinks that she's part of their team or wants to kick her out of the tent of their team has any real influence over her. But the local level, at the council level, you can actually potentially, because especially because the, the voting pools are generally smaller and more concentrated, you can actually wield block-like influence over uh, your local politicians in a way that changes the stakes and makes you have to reorient your whole uh, understanding of what the politics are. It makes you have to give up a lot of your ego-based uh, fixations on uh, like ritualized positions on things, for one. like You might actually have to sacrifice some uh, uh, idealized notions on the altar of... Um, of practicality, which had never come into anybody's mind because no power has ever been wielded on the left. If you do get local local power, it's going to come with the necessity of realpolitik that I don't think a lot of people are ready for because purity politics has been the sum total of politics for most people's adult lives. There's been nothing other than your the purity of your position. And this isn't to blame anybody for that. It's not to say you're being a, a culture of narcissist PMC because of that. There is no other thing to base it on because there is no actual power. There is only a daily like self-understanding of who you are in a fallen world. What else are you supposed to do? But when power is on the table, you have to reorient yourself. And it's going to be a big challenge. And I honestly don't know how it's going to shape up. It could create a, like a bad feedback loop that generally do, genuinely does like uh, uh, undermine everything, or you know, uh, it could be a situation where the momentum of power has its own converting ability, its own um, its own co uh, persuasive power. Like if you actually get something done, as opposed to 
be told something's going to get done and then it never actually does. If you actually have a situation where you vote someone for someone, they do something and then if they don't, you stop. So they do what you want them to do. If you actually have that, the stakes change. The stakes change. And it more than anything clarifies action because your decisions are not no longer, well, what position am I going to take on this? Because all I'm going to be doing all day is reinforcing what I believe by expressing it to other people. What if I'm actually doing something, like participating in something, like active in it? All of a sudden, the stakes are much closer to my moment and it clarifies what I should do because the actual moment can be viewed clearly because it's in front of you. It's not in the ether. It's not in this machine that rewards novelty and righteousness over everything. And that is why I think the uh, absolute, the only response to have uh, to this whole stupid online argument about Stalin and whether he's good or bad, the most tedious argument ever, one of them anyway, that comes up over and over again, uh, can be answered by not, ch- by not even engaging with the, the, the genuinely bourgeois sentimental bullshit about number of bodies and stuff like that, which anyone with elementary understanding of material analysis would say that's bullshit. Uh, fucking Churchill had 6 million uh, Bengalis on his hands and he, he fucking laughed about it throughout the, the entire war. He thought it was, he thought it was uh, a basically a giant like prank from uh, one of his disgusting uh, English public schools. Who cares about that? Stalin was a fucking coward, a bitch, and a loser. And that's what matters. Stalin did an incredible thing in building the Soviet Union, if you want to give him credit for it, which is, of course, stupid in the first place. Because another reason all this discourse is ridiculous, there's no, the power does not reside in the person that way. You're actually doing like mysticism to imbue one dude with the entire uh, like uh, agency of the Soviet project. That's stupid. He built this thing, him and him and the system that he presided over created this formation, this thing that was not capitalism, that was developmental without the profit at the heart of it. Now it was, as capitalism had been, insanely bloody in its development, had wrung blood from stones, had turned peasants into mulch, because that's what you do. That is what, that's what progress in civilization is. It is pulling people away from the land. It is pulling resources away from the land. It is reducing uh, the need for... Uh, uh, reducing mouths, basically in the countryside, so that consumption can happen in the cities. And that is where you build state, you build capital, you build an economy, you build state capacity, you build something that can compete on the Westphalian stage of of state competition 
that emerged in Europe in the 18, 16th, 17th century, which is the context for all the developments of capitalism and Soviet communism and everything else. That is, that is the, the, the train that gave birth to everything. It's that competition. And so communism did what capitalism did. It killed a lot of peasants. And it effectively distributed resources enough to leapfrog historical development stages far faster than capitalism would have allowed for. Because capitalism parcels out that violence. And parceling out that violence was harder for the Soviets because their empire was a multi-ethnic empire. Their empire was relatively homogenous, as opposed to the empires of Europe, which were racially divided. So you could have safe, cozy social democracies in the heartland and brutal extraction at the edges. Couldn't do that in the Soviet Union. Everybody is a Slav, basically. Certainly everybody where there's any food is a Slav. And so you got to do it to your own people, which makes your system poisonous in, in, the, in, a, in world memory in a way that the European imperial powers aren't because of that racial difference. So they did what the capitalism did much faster to their own people. And they fought off an existential attack by this monstrous national capitalist mutant in the form of the, the, the Nazi state. It was going to solve the problem of, of, of capitalism and culture under capitalism by creating a, a master race for who, who would have all rights and therefore all liberties and all material, uh, uh, all material interests met, any kind of conceivable material interest met, and then other humans who are either extinguished or provide the slave labor and are outside of humanity. Essentially libertarianism, because libertarianism is the same end state. It is not the end of human misery and human exploitation and suffering and oppression. It is the cordoning off of that into an other group whose pain is not felt by the community. The Soviet Union didn't do, have that. They did it internally. But it gave them a chance to fight off this uh, attempt to snap off uh, a, a, a middle-class society and just dominate the world with it. Technologically. They weren't there yet. International capitalism was the only force in the world with the ability to organize and coordinate material relationships because it had been developed in the Anglosphere. It had been developed in the American common law tradition of free real estate and expropriation of a foreigner. The assimilation into, an inf uh, into a cultural infrastructure. That made it more supple, more able to coordinate resources, and able to, and, and it was the survival of the fittest, really. But then the Soviets, who had, who had turned away from the permanent revolution, had turned away from igniting the war in Europe that everybody understood needed to happen to save the Soviets from doing what they did to their peasantry. He cut off that possibility to save the Soviet experiment because he thought otherwise it was going to collapse, and maybe he was right. The only other off-ramp for this was Bukharin, buying off the peasants and slowly reintroducing capitalism in the countryside, which honestly might have been the best choice. But I understood, I stand why they didn't do it, and if they don't do it, 
then you have to foreclose on the world revolution. You have to become another state among states mercilessly competing for power, for self, for, for, for survival. But then you do it and then you get to the end of it and then you fucking turn up your belly. Your final chance with the final confrontation with capitalism that you've spilled oceans of blood to afford and you bitch out because you are too addicted to your to your position. You're, either if you're Stalin or anybody in the Soviet bureaucracy, you are too addicted to the comforts of not bourgeois society, but whatever uh, new bureaucratic class that they composed. They weren't going to give it up. Uh, there was a chance that they could have given it up if they had really embraced cybernetics in the 50s and 60s and created machinery that could reproduce the price signal, but then what would they have had to do? They would have had to get real jobs. Bureaucracy is necessary to the de- is is it needs to exist to the degree it's necessary. But if material interest is dominating people, and because these are still Western subjects, these people were not these people were essentially not the workers who arose to take over Soviet Union. It was this cadre of of agitated middle classes who seized control of the of the bourgeois state in the 1917 uh, revolution. But once you have a self-sustaining bureaucracy, its understanding of the good of the of uh, the revolution, the good of communism, becomes the, the, their own self-interest, and they don't even recognize that the two are identical. And they pursue one and the other, thinking they're doing the best thing for the Soviet Union, but they're really undermining it from within. No, no, we can't allow the price signal to be determined rationally, because then what are we going to do? Are we going to have to get real jobs? Are we going to have to work in a factory, too? Are we going to have to do useful, socially useful work, too? Fuck no. Who wants to do that? And I agree. That's what they signed up for, though, when they decided to play the game. After the civil, after uh, World War II, when they decided to fight the West on the terms of markets and uh, outputs and consumption and economic development through consumption, and that wasn't Khrushchev's fault. People put it on Khrushchev. It was Stalin's fault. This needs to be emphasized. Stalin set the stage so that by the time Khrushchev took power, he had no other options. The other option was Beria trying to do glasnost 50 years earlier. I don't know if anybody is aware of this, but uh, if any, if you saw Death of Stalin, they really, uh, they speed things up very quickly. Uh, Beria was head of a troika that ruled after Stalin's death for almost a year before Zhukov and Khrushchev uh, got together to, to coup their asses. Beria's move was to essentially, in exchange for a Russian Marshall Plan, stepping down out of a conflict with um, cop- capitalism completely. A formal surrender. That was Beria's bottom line. This monster, one of the most disgusting ghouls to be coughed up by the Stalinist state. And he, was, he would have been the man of the year. He would have been the hero of the millennia in, in the West if he had pulled that off. And Khrushchev cooed him. And yes, then he pursued botched agricultural policy and a consumer economy, but he had to. Because Stalin had set the stage. Because Stalin, even after building that state, was afraid to use it when the time was right. 
Stalin after the war is in the same position the German Social Democrats were after World War I, and he made the same decisions, and the Russian bureaucracy made the same decisions. Because they had been bourgeoisified by their conditions of life and traumatized, of course, by the fucking purges. Uh, and just the, the sheer, um, the, you know, uh, trauma of the war, of the Civil War years and of the, of the fucking famine and years and then the fucking World War II, my God. Maybe he doesn't have to go to war over Greece right away, but he has to not do what he did which was allow Bretton Woods, the fucking anaconda plan of Bretton Woods system to strangle Russian fucking communism by turning it into a maximal, because yes, oh, we got to feed these, uh, we got to get out consumer goods for these people. How are we going to do that? Well, we got to work our workers harder. Whereas in the West, get, give more of these material comforts to your working class and they, don't have, they, get to, they have to work less. Because somebody else in the third world is working more. Somebody else in the newly created third world is working more. So he gets to work less. So he'll keep working at, at maximal uh, efficiency. Meanwhile, if all you're offering is consumption and, they can, and the consum consumer goods suck, but there was no other way they could have, they could, you can't win. You can't win. If you're operating from an idea of material interest that is selfish, you will you will eventually commit social suicide. Oh, somebody says the Soviet Union needed control of the Hellespont, period. The fucking czars knew it. The czars were the dumbest people on earth, and they fucking knew that you needed the Hellespont if you were going to compete with Europe. That's why they went to World War I. Russia was too backwards to compete with Europe unless they had something like the fucking Hellespont. Did Stalin direct his post-war foreign policy around getting the Hellespont? No. What he did was he allowed capitalism to gather its strength to wage a war in the, in the rest of the world to dominate and control resources in terrains that the Soviets were afraid to tread and making them, putting them in a position where they can't win. Putting them in checkmate. Allowed by, uh, because Stalin, Stalin let the West set the chessboard. He let the set, he let them set the conditions of play before they started. So that is why I think there is nothing more tedious than argue about whether Stalin was good or bad. He was a loser. Somebody says, I have incurable alternative history brain. That is 100% accurate. I cop to that. I am uh, I'm all about the counterfactual. But as, as Walter Scheil has pointed out, counterfactuality uh, is literally how you think of history. You can only relate historical realities by contrasting them to things that didn't happen. So you're creating a ghost image of history as you conceive of it. And then it's always going to be intriguing to just wonder where the intersections are. 
where the portals were between one determined reality and another, because I really do believe that, that, that randomness is in the system sufficient to create wormholes of possibility that are bore, that are, that bore through every other overdetermined physical interaction. And that in that is the sum total of human agency. The, uh, the awakening of the world spirit is in that. It's the ghost in the machine that is slowly being extinguished. Like our spirit is being extinguished by capitalism. It is not overwrought or ad busteries to, to say that in a very real sense. This gets me back to material interest. Our understanding of our material interest is different than it used to be. At every level of society, at every level of experience, people living now, experiencing this world now, are doing it with a more impoverished sense of interest, a more personally focused, less communally validated notion of interest than people did before. And I want to give an example of this. Not divided by, from us necessarily to them, but within time space. So when I say that, I say everybody now has a different and more narrow understanding of, of material interests than they used to. That means at every level of society. So every type of person that exists now that fills the ranks of our social classes and reproduces social behaviors now. People, to the degree that that same position existed in the past, it's still situated with other ones, but within them, they all had a more socially capacious understanding of self-material, of material interest. So to contrast two different people, or three different people, I guess, within one time span, across uh, like personal axes of experience, uh, has anybody seen the movie uh, The Founder about Ray Kroc, starring Michael Keaton? Uh, a very, very good movie directed, uh, written by uh, Robert Siegel, the guy who also wrote Big Fan and directed Big Fan, which is a, also a very good movie. So I'm going to do some slight spoilers here. The movie is about how uh, the process by which this, this itinerant salesman, uh, this guy had been on the grind trying to get rich uh, with like Ronco level schemes since uh, World War II, uh, Ray Kroc uh, finds these uh, brothers who had created a new system for uh, for fast food delivery, literally uh, an efficient distribution of labor within a within a kitchen to vastly increase the output of a uh, restaurant. And he, and the movie is about how he got his brothers to sign over uh, to him to allow him to franchise it. His creation of this franchise model that swept the nation and then his eventual uh, consumption of the brothers. He ends up uh, buying the brothers out of their control of the company, uh, taking away their restaurant that they had created where this, the first McDonald's. Uh, so that they had to call it something else, and then he put up a McDonald's next to it and ran it out of business. Just destroyed these guys who had actually created the thing, and that's the story. And it's about my and Michael Keaton plays the guy. So the McDonald brothers and Ray Kroc. These characters are all what we would call capitalists, right? 
by the within the, I mean by by the time uh Croc is like in comp, is fighting them by the time Croc is is exercising control of the company these are all capitalists but they do not share material interests even though they are the same class even though they're part of the same project the McDonald brothers in a sequence that's one of my favorite scenes in recent movies and something that honestly they could teach in I'm not surprised that the, the Prager University hasn't used this thing as a pay on to the glories of capitalism. Like this is a story that is like would be in any textbook to talk about that wants to talk about the possibility of the American dream, which is that you can through your own ability, will gumption and vision and creativity, you are able to write your will in the world. That is the American dream. Writing your will in the world is the dream of socialism too, but it is a collective dream. We don't have that. We have the individual dream. That is our material understanding, is the individual dream. And it is de depicted in this thing where uh, the brothers, played by Nick Offerman as, uh, as Ray and uh, John Carroll Lynch, a.k.a. Zodiac, as... Uh, as Maurice Mac McDonald. And they, Ray Kroc sees the restaurant, is blown away by it, sees their system, takes them to dinner and wants to hear the story. And they tell it. And you can tell right away that they've been waiting to tell this story to somebody. They're incredibly proud of it. They tell it with theatrical panache. Uh, John Carroll Lynch is just like absolutely hamming it up in a very, very credible way. Nick Offerman is like doing this very bemused uh, under stated thing, they're clearly just having a ball because they did this thing and they want someone to know about it. And they tell the story about how these guys came from New Hampshire to LA to be in movies. And I think that's incredibly important. These guys didn't want to be capitalists. They wanted to be artists. They had the artist spirit. Their first instinct was not to start a business. It was to get into the dream factory. Maybe you start as a grip and make your way up to a director. You get to be a stuntman. Or maybe you get to be cast as like one of those guys in a 50s movie like the comic relief uh, who, who go, has his uh, pants all the way up to here and like is always falling in troughs. And then they, did, they, they were like extras. They were stuntmen. They, they watched out of the thing. Then they tried to do a movie theater. They wanted to do a movie theater. If they couldn't be in the movies, they wanted to be around the movies. These are people who did not want... Their material interests, their understanding of their interests was not material acquisition over everything. They wanted something else, something that could only be achieved socially through expression and coordination with others. And then the movie theater was killed by the Depression, and then they had to find something to do, so they were at a restaurant, and then they applied their artistic temperaments to the restaurant. And it was literally the, the bringing together of these two uh, artistic temperaments, this guy who wanted to create a machine, a beautiful machine, and this person who wanted to uh, package it and express it, built this thing. And there's the montage of them sketching out the, the uh, kitchen on a uh, tennis court and having people go around. There's one scene, there's one shot where Nick Offerman is literally standing over these people coordinating the actions, waving his hands like he's a conductor going, relish, ketchup. 
He's literally conducting an orchestra. Ray Kroc, here's the story. Now, Ray Kroc has no creative anything. This guy has no desire to be uh, appreciated for his soul, his self-expression. He wants to be recognized as better than somebody else, higher up than somebody else. This is a guy who has spent his whole life trying to get rich, has lived beyond his means, is probably married to a rich woman, lives in, uh, goes to a country club with a bunch of rich guys who all look down on him. He is the perfectly aggrieved Nixonian subject. He's, been, he's a 50-year-old man who's reciting the same spiel about fucking uh, malt, uh, malt machines to disinterested uh, drive-in hosts, and he's, he has nothing left to care about uh, anything other than getting, a, getting some validation through uh, advancement, through social advancement, power, money, all that stuff. So here's the story, and he just wants to make money out of it. And so once they start the company, uh, the McDonald brothers are, keep pulling the reins on him, keep saying, no, no, don't do this. We have values that uh, uh, are transcend money. And he's saying, what are you talking about? I just need to make money. More and more and more. I need money. What are you talking about? And these are both people on the same class position who share, if you wanted to use one word for it, the same material interest, but have different material interests as they understand them because they're different people who had different experiences. And that is true in every strata of society at every given moment in time. Both of those guys are Republicans. Both of those guys are happy to exploit labor for their vision, are happy to use the capitalist system to their benefit, but towards different ends, towards a more social end and towards a personal acquisitive end. And the weird thing about capitalism is that it is a magnet that pulls people like Ray Kroc up and pulls people like the McDonald brothers down. Because the system rewards the person who is most interested in making money, by definition, because that's what the system does. It points like a North Star those within an firmament who are most aware of their self-interest as narrow, who are most blind to abstract notions of value, to socially stored systems and uh, uh, portions of value, expressions of value, I should say. So they have different material interests. And so over time, Ray Kroc, what do you know? He gets the upper hand on the McDonald's boys, even though they had an ironclad contract. He's able to get together with another guy who tells him, hey, you should have these guys be buying the land from you. And then if you control the land, your leverage changes. He didn't think of that. But he uses it to get to pry one over and to dominate the McDonald's boys and to take it from them. And to impoverish them. They, he runs them out of business. Even though they're both capitalists with the same material interests. Because his interests are more narrow. And because they are, he's willing to do things the McDonald's brothers aren't. And it means that eventually his power is socially rewarded enough that he's able to win. Because who cares what the law says? The reality is, if he's got more liquidity, more access to capital than they do then there is no legal question that he won't win because he can wait them out. Yeah, sue me. I will drag it out and I have more money than you because he's willing to do things they won't 
because he's willing to cut corners, they won't. He's willing to ignore values that transcend money, they, they won't. And then that happens at every level of the economy. Over and over and over again, that process happens. So that now we have reached, it's now 70, what, 80 years later? Almost 100 years later. And now the McDonald's are gone. Everybody is Ray Kroc. The McDonald's have been driven out of the system, pulled out. Those artistic talents, they either lie dormant, they are destroyed, or somebody makes it on the margins of society or or takes a, a, a precarious labor, falls out of power, becomes politically radicalized, maybe. It's the bad driving out the good, exactly. Uh, and it's all bad now. There's only Ray Crocs. Uh, there are still people doing art. There are still people doing entrepreneurship. There are still doing things that have that associated historic relationship to self-expression or autonomy, but they are now crabbed and broken and small, and everyone who pursues them has compromised so much that they don't get the pleasures they used to be out of it. And so they have to reconsider their self-interest is more narrowly because there's no other place to get validated than narrow self-pleasure uh, because there's no other pleasures to be had. Won't the Ray Crocs eventually turn on each other, though? I mean, that's what we have right now. Right now, like in a larger sense, the battle between the Republicans and the Democrats, between those two capital and social formations, is the battle between the people who are in the McDonald's brothers' positions, not in terms of like ingenuity and, and brilliance or anything, but local, local concentrations of capital, are at war with the Ray Crocs, only everybody is Ray Kroc. The only thing that still exists is the social distinction, if you know what I mean. Because they still do have different understandings of their material interest, but they are no longer being defined by this conflict over values because the values have desiccated and fallen away. They're now just the forms of the values. They're just the shadows uh, uh, left by the nuclear incineration of the values. It's private equity versus like the local uh, uh, tire store conglomerate or or restaurant franchisee, and those guys are those guys are like those type of guys are the actual social engine in terms of the people who made up the voters, the candidates, the ideology, the provide the money for the conservative counter reaction that started in the fifties. It was those aggrieved guys, not the McDonald's brothers who had a song in their heart. It's the post-defeated McDonald's brothers. It's the, it's the ones who never had anything in the first place. The ones who, um, the ones who were like local, just power seekers, but who were local in their power. And from the, uh, the, the 
it really, you could pinpoint it from when Robert Taft had the Republican convention stolen from him, the nomination stolen from him by Eisenhower and Wall Street. You can begin that. That is the beginning of the creation of the guys who stormed the Capitol. Like that is that that was the the big bang of that specific social trajectory. Trump and then whatever the hell we have now, this this populist right reaction to globalization. So that's material interest. It's what binds us. It's in this uh, deterministic web, but it's also moment to moment what liberates us from it is the fact that there is, until we get to the end, until you become Jeff Bezos, there is a sheath, a human sheath around that uh, understanding. Because remember, we don't even know what our best interests are if they're abstracted beyond our noses. So even our uh, self even even there can be no objective perception of our self-interest, even in the narrow, even in the short term. And of course, then you get the con the conflict between the short term and the long term interest. But even beyond that, you can't even know the short term one all the time. The virtualization of the economy is what this is all leading towards. I mean, the creation of, of, of cryptocurrency in general is, is an example of that. There, the fact that you have, a, you know, Facebook has a trillion-dollar valuation at a time when, you know, real, real construction, total value of those industries is a fraction of that. There's nowhere to put the money that can be profitably brought back in production. There's nothing you can produce profitably anymore. The margins are too narrow. It ends up costing more to make. You, you, we are at the end point that, that, that uh, Marx predicted, but it's being propped up by the creation of an abstract shadow economy. Taking those transactions and then generating economic activity out of those transactions, out of the, out of the um, ether, essentially creating fictions around them and then and then trading the fictions. But that's all it is. But because it's technological now, because it is virtual, because it moves at the speed of the global like cybernetic mind, we've now reached the point where you can do microtransactions where you're 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 trading stocks in a fraction of a second and accumulating guaranteed profits over time. That can only happen because there's nowhere else for the money to go. The money is being directed more and more into the virtual realm, into finance, into all this, because there is nowhere else you can put it. You put it in as a loss leader to finance now. All actual productive capacity, all our actual productive economy is a loss leader for finance. 
Oh, and the other thing about um, I wanted to say about Croc is one of the great things about Croc as a character as depicted in the film is that in contrast to the incredibly inventive, uh, proud, uh, stolid McDonald brothers, um, Croc learns nothing, has no connection to anything. His desire is totally unmoored from any uh, any enjoyment beyond uh, self-validation. It's, it's, it's totally arid. At the beginning of the movie, while he's still trying to pep himself up to be a milkshake salesman, he uh, he's listening to this Dale Carnegie tape, or this Dale Carnegie uh, um, record on a portable player in his hotel room. And it's just this spiel about how persistence is the key to success. And he's repeating it, and he's repeating it. And then he goes through this whole thing where he gets the McDonald's brothers, and he, he swindles them out of it. He takes credit for it. He calls his first franchise McDonald's number one. He starts referring them to himself as the founder. He buys their name from them because it's clean and crisp and American and you can make it into anything. And at the end of the movie, he's giving a speech before Ronald Reagan when he was governor of California. And it's like recapitulating everything that happened. And he's practicing the speech in the front of the mirror. And it's just the fucking Dale Carnegie uh, record. It's just the same thing he's been listening to for for 40 years. Just a hollow. He's just, it's just a, all he can do is echo this voice saying, grind, persist, because it's all that's ever animated him. And nothing has been accumulated. Nothing has been learned. Uh, and he spends the whole time succeeding because of the efforts of harder working or more, uh, more creatively minded collaborators who come up with things at every point that he then takes credit for because he's the guy with the money. All right. I've already gone. But anyway, so I think that's another reason that's a great movie because not only does it show you how capitalism develops, it shows you what capitalism does to people and more importantly, how, the kind of people who thrive in it remake us in their image through their ability to persist like a fucking fungus, like a bacteria. And it can only be carried out by hollow people. And, uh, and they, they demonstrate that crock is completely hollow. All right, I've already gone too long, and I've uh, owned myself, so I'm going to tap out. Thank you for understanding. I swear to God, I'm not getting that fat. I'm not that fat. It's a poorly put-together IKEA chair. I swear to Christ. Ah, oh, boy. <laughs>